Hello, everybody, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with co-host... Ed Wilkinson. Welcoming you to a special edition of Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in this afternoon. We have another action-packed show for you today. In just a few minutes, Pima Chair Shelley Kais joins us to talk about a bill that the legislature, or in the legislature, which has been passed with serious implications, political activists in Arizona that have many Republicans pretty hot. After we hear from Shelley, GOP primary candidate Eli Crane joins us to talk about his campaign to become the Republican nominee for Congress in CD2. At the bottom of the hour, uh, Jeff Seashull joins us to talk about Biden SCOTUS nominee Katanji Brown Jackson. Good job. Thank you. I've practiced that. <laughs> as as well as the justice she may replace, longtime Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Before we get rolling, let me remind you, calls to the Inside Track studio brought to you by our great supporters, Eric Rudin at Essential Pest, who share your dislikes of bugs, vermin, and weeds, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus, their junk is your treasure, and Joy and Allie at Corazon Cabinets, cabinets for your home that you will love. Also helping support Inside Track is my friend and Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Let Eb help you never have to depend upon Social Security. All of our sponsors are locally owned, family-run businesses you can depend upon. Eb and I do, so should you. Okay, old friend, Pima GOP Chair Shelley Kais is waiting to talk with us about something that has a bunch of GOPers pretty hot. Shelley, welcome back to Inside Track. Well, thank you very much. Hey, Good tell, afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, tell our listeners what's happening uh, with uh, the legislature. Well, there's a couple of bills that, that are uh, going on right now. The first one, the, the start of all of this is what's called HB 2839. And HB 2839 had five sections to it. The section that really has caught uh, certainly the state of Arizona uh, off guard and all of our precinct committeemen who work so hard off guard was Section 4. And Section 4 basically said this, that candidates would submit their nomination papers to the committee, the, the political party committee, by April 18th, and then the the political party committee would appoint one precinct committeeman per precinct, and they would send that to elections by, or I'm sorry, send it to the Board of Supervisors by May 2nd, and the Board of Supervisors would just deem those people elected, and then if there were any vacancies in the future, the political, the county political party would just appoint somebody, and then the party would become the repository of all these names. So in other words, summing that down, it means that precinct committeemen will no longer be election, elected through the elections process. They would just turn their names into the county party, and the county party would go and pick one precinct committeeman for every precinct, and in Pima County, we've got 279 of them. We'd send their, those names up to the Board of Supervisors. They would deem them elected, and that would be that. Well, that sends the whole state party structure into absolute chaos. 
absolute chaos. So, I mean, people started calling. I mean, this happened. Uh, there, it went straight to third read, passed the House, passed the Senate, and, and went to the governor and was signed within like eight hours. Nothing happens like that. And this was an emergency. Was an emergency. This was done on an emergency yeah. basis. Jake Hoffman, uh, who um, is a state legislator um, uh, and works within the AZGOP, this is what he said. He says, we need to repeal this thing. I am ticked off. He says, I spent most of the day working on how to resolve uh, the issue with HB 2839 and the insane provision to strip PCs of their elected status. Our PCs are too damned, too darn important uh, for uh, for this. We need a full repeal of this. I'm ticked off. And you know, as a as a former Republican political activist, as somebody who who for years was a PC uh, and an elected PC, uh, and Knowing how the pro- how the political process works and how important precinct committee men and women are so important to what both parties do, this is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. What's more crazy is I believe it was voted on unanimously. Yeah. So Republicans and Democrats all supported this bill. There was some some confusion about it wasn't formatted correctly and things like that. Actually, Section 4 was new session law. It was formatted correctly. Um, when, and, and in response, the, the Senate uh, and the House have said, okay, we have to fix this. And so now we have Senate Bill 1720. And the first section of 1720 <laughs> repeals that Section 4 of House Bill 2839. So, there is uh, there is legislation. The problem now is that the Democrats who don't really use PCs like we do they use paid volunteers. They're saying, yeah, they use paid volunteers and unions. And so, well, you know, the AFL CIO, the teachers union, Mi Familia Vota, Vota C, all of those are out there paid working on the ground for the Democrats. So they're like, yeah, you know what, we're okay with this, and. Let us not forget that the um, the state, the Democrat state leader, is is a state senator and yep. knew all about this bill. They've been working on the first parts of this bill on sections one, two, and three. They've been working on it for a long time to get this in place so that we had safe harbor laws for petitions and things like that. She knew all about this. It got slipped in. Section four got slipped in. I think nobody was paying attention to it and it got passed unanimously. And so now here we are. And so the Democrats are sitting back and saying, you know what? It's not that important to us. So what are you going to give me? So now here we are with Senate Bill 1720. And the first part is it repeals section four of House Bill 2839. Now our state, uh, our state Chairwoman Kelly Ward organized all of the county chairmen last Sunday afternoon at two o'clock. We wrote a letter to Senator Fan and to uh, Speaker Bowers, and we said repeal Section Four. That is the position of the county chairman and the ch- state chairwoman. Repeal Section Four. That letter was signed and sent to them by six o'clock last Sunday. 
Shelly, um, Shelly, Eb has a yeah. question for you. Yeah, Shelly, Eb here. Please. H- how many of the sure. Republicans that voted knew what they were voting for? I want to say none. I mean, I don't. I haven't asked them all, but who would vote to to eliminate the process of electing your precinct committeemen? I think the the question is, you know, did they know? I, I have to believe none of them did, because anybody who willfully voted for this and wants to remove the grassroots of our party, well, they, they need, to, need be to be removed. Shelley, let me let me just say this for you, for Ab, and for everybody listening here today. You know, look as as you all may know, I served at the highest level. Uh, of, uh, uh, you know, a, a private political activist, uh, at the RNC on a national level for years. Uh, for years, even at the national level, the role of a Republican National Committee member, the role of even the National Republican Committee, and the relevance of state parties Congressional district uh, representation uh, by by activists and legislative district uh, representation has been mocked. It's been degraded. It's been diminished. Um, it's my belief, and and maybe I'm not looking at this right. I think there's a lot of elected officials and and national party leaders who would rather not have any participation where they have to be accountable to precinct committee men and precinct committee women in the Republican Party. What do you think about that? Well, you know what, Bruce, that may be true, but I am not one of those people. And I want no, of course to not. reassure, I want to reassure every precinct committeeman that's out there. I went up to Phoenix on Tuesday and I was very direct and very assertive, which may not be, you know, may not be comfortable to see a woman being direct and assertive, but I am because it's that important to me. We have about 780 precinct committee men in Pima County, and I am going to fight for them. They deserve the election process that we have had forever, and I believe that it was the Arizona Association of Counties that worked with the authors of this legislation to slide this in. And for any elected Republicans who believe that they would be better off without their grassroots, we're going to give them an opportunity to see how good they are without their grassroots because we will ferret them out, we will find out who they are, and they can work to get their signatures by themselves and hang their own literature because the precinct committeemen in Pima County work hard. We, we are dedicated. We are diligent. We get the job done, and this is not going to be allowed to stand. So SB 1720, a full repeal of Section 4, and they're trying to put some legislation in with a retroactivity clause. And hopefully the Democrats will realize how important this is to their PCs as well. Hey, Shelley, we have to go. Uh, we've got to take our bottom okay. of the hour break. Thanks for joining us, Shelley Kais. Mr. Producer, when we return, uh, we're going to hear from GOP candidate Eli Crane. He's running for CD2. He's going to join us for his first visit into Inside Track. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel. 
to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you think what's happening in Ukraine can't happen here, think again. Look who's occupying the White House. This is one of many things our forefathers predicted and ensured those rights in our Constitution. We manage money for gun owners. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Bruce is here. So is Eb. Our special guest until the bottom of the hour is Eli Crane. He is a GOP candidate for U.S. Congress in the new CD2. Welcome to the show, Eli. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. My co-host and I have pledged to get as many GOP candidates in the 22 midterms on the show. So thanks for joining us in person, and that's a good thing as well. Always nice to see our folks. Hey, um, I know you're uh, married, have a dad, beautiful kids. Uh, give us a real brief bio on Eli Crane. Yeah, um, and I appreciate you guys getting a bunch of candidates in here. I think that that's, I think that's awesome when the people that are listening and watching your show get an opportunity to hear from everybody um it just means that they have the better best chance of getting the best representation possible we don't want low information voters we want to be educated voters no and that's that's what needs to happen yeah um so a little bit about myself i was actually born and raised in uh arizona uh born in tucson but raised in yuma of all places and uh grew up there uh started going to school out there in arizona western did a couple years out there and then transferred to U of A, uh, was do, did about a year here and then started my senior year at, uh, U of A and 9-11 happened. So I dropped out of the, uh, dropped out my senior year the week after 9-11, joined the Navy, spent the next 13 years, uh, serving in that capacity, wanted to become a SEAL, took me a while to become a SEAL, took me five years, hmm. um, finally became a SEAL and then I did three deployments, um, at SEAL Team 3. And then spent a couple more years um, in what we would call shore duty or mm-hmm. shore billets, trying to trying to plan my exit because at that point I had um, a wife and two daughters, and I was kind of my body was kind of broken down a little bit, and I was also tired of watching my kids grow up in pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in addition, I also uh, felt like I got to do what I came to do, so um, started started doing a couple shore duty jobs and then I started my company bottle breacher out of our one car garage right. in Point Loma. Um as soon as I got out of the uh military, uh moved the family back to Arizona and we've been here ever since running our company. 
So you served uh, numerous deployments, as you said, as a Navy SEAL. Uh, you've seen battle. Um, why did you get into this fight, running for Congress in CD2, and tell us about this battle uh, and how it's different from anything you've ever experienced before? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it it is cliche, but, you know, when we swear an oath, it is foreign and domestic. And the biggest fight for this country right now is right here within. It is domestic. And so to me, this is the I feel the same way I did back right after 9-11, knowing that the country is in massive trouble and knowing that if we don't send men and women with courage and character um, and a little common sense, into positions of leadership, um, we're going to continue to see more of the same. And so it is a much different battlefield. It's so much different than anything that I've ever done. But all I can do as somebody who loves this country and, and as a patriot is say, hey, this is my resume. This is what I stand for. I'm willing to go. If 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 I seem like a good enough candidate for you all, um, send me and I'll go do it. And, and that's, you know, that's so much different because back in the military, it was, it didn't work like that. It was like, Hey, I'm willing to go. And, and then I just volunteer and I go try and make it as far as I can and try and get as deep into the fight as I can. But this is obviously a completely different fight. So yep. Eli, um, coming from the Marine Corps side of the house, you know, I, I see the same types of things that you're seeing. Of course, we had, uh, different paths. You were, Navy SEAL. I couldn't read, so I went to the Marine Corps. Um, but for you, the the turning point was 9-11 when you said, I've got to go in. Was there a specific turning point that you know of that said, I've got to go in? Are you talking about now? For now. Yeah, I think um, I think it's been a, I think it's been a lot of things. Um, this last election was a big it was a big moment for many of us, I think. Um, and I realize that there's there's so many different perspectives on the election. Um, but as I watch the trajectory of this country, as I watch us have no southern border, as I watch movements, riots in the streets, um, our public officials at the highest level even siding with movements like defunding the police, as I watch cultural Marxism invade our schools, our media, academia, Hollywood, etc. I think a lot, the reason that you see so many special operators right now, and I, I've heard there's upwards of 50 of us running um, for U.S. Congress, it's not a cord, it was no coordinated campaign. I think these men and women that were willing to die for this country and wanted to go as deep into the fight as they possibly could, just we all recognize the danger we all recognize there was an inflection point we all recognize how close we are to losing the freedoms and opportunities and the prosperity that we've all got to that we've all been blessed to grow up with and so the election was a big one for me personally um and just watching how many irregularities there were and then as i started to dive more into it um and watch that a lot of things weren't allowed to be covered, it really concerned me because we have, um, the way our government works is, obviously, we get to vote for and send who we want to send. And if that is impeded in any way, if it if that institution is weakened, then we have a massive problem, a massive problem. And so, 
you know, that that's a that's an issue for me. It's something that I realize, again, not everybody's on the same page that a lot of people don't think our elections are in trouble. A lot of people don't think our elections, um, you know, have any any major fraud that would be able to overturn an election or even meddle with it. I completely disagree with that. And for all of you out there that believe that, this is what I'll say. If at the end of the day, I want to tighten up our elections, that's not going to hurt anybody. That's going to that's going to be a good thing. Agreed. So um, that, you know, that was definitely one of the biggest um, trigger points for me. So you talked about the number of special operators running for Congress this time and how it was not planned. Um, It's interesting that the number of special operators that basically joined right after 9-11, you know, we're seeing the same type of thing. They're being called out. You know, how, however you want to look at it, they're being called out to serve. And they said, I can't do this anymore. So it's not just you. It, it's all the other special operators out there that are doing this as well that are being called up because of this last election. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And and that's the cool thing, guys, is I realize as I look at this, and I, I try and look at it objectively, there's six other people in this primary, and then Tom O'Halloran is the three-term Democrat that holds the seat now. He's a real dud, isn't he? Yeah, well, he votes with Nancy Pelosi 98% of the time and I think AOC 94% of the time. The bottom line is this. I realize um, there's a good chance that Eli Crane will never be a congressman, okay? I I fully acknowledge that. I understand that. But when I see this many many guys of that caliber step up and say, hey, I'm willing to go back, these guys, in my opinion, should be enjoying the American dream. in my opinion, they deserve they 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 deserve it as much as anybody out there. But they're saying no. I'm not going to sit back and watch it anymore. This country's in trouble. I'm willing to go serve again. I'm willing to. Most of us don't like wearing ties. If you know anything about the special operations community, and Eli's not wearing a tie. No, nope, I'm not wearing a tie. I'm not wearing a suit. <laughs> ben Bueller Garcia was just giving me a hard time in the hallway about it. Um, and you had a newer you had a newer T-shirt on than he thought yeah, you would have. This is a new T-shirt, guys. It's clean. <laughs> Pulled it out of the drawer this morning, but um, you. Know, you know, it's like it does give me hope to see these individuals coming out of, you know, doing whatever they were doing and saying, I will go serve again. Yeah, well, they thought they were done. I did. They thought they were going to enjoy the fruits of their yeah. labor. And then they got called up again, not by anybody in particular, but by the country. You they know, said, we can't do this anymore. We have to move. Guys, I have a 14 year old and a 10 year old daughter. This is one of the worst times in the world for me to do this. People had asked me years ago because I've always been outspoken and engaged um, in in what I consider to be conservative thought leadership just because I I saw this coming. And I'm sure you guys have seen this coming down the path for for years and years and years. Um, And people would ask me, would would you consider running? Is this something that you'd want to do? And I said, you know, probably not. Uh, And if I do, it'll be once my kids are out of the house just because it makes so much more sense. But it's getting to the point where I think a lot of us have felt um, the sense of urgency. And like, if we don't, if we don't start turning this thing back around now, my kids might not have anything, you know, anything that has been fought for, not just in my generation, but the generations before us. And, you know, that's why, uh, that's why I'm doing this. So, Quick question. We ask this of every candidate that comes in. Um, what is the stated purpose of government? I would say the stated purpose of government is to protect 
your God-given unalienable rights. Ding, 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 ding. We support people who, who know the answer to that question. We don't, we won't support, nobody's not known that, but we support people who do know yeah, that. And concept. if they don't know that, they, they have no business running. Yeah. Well, hat tip to you, my, my, my good friend, Jeff Uch, the constitutional sensei. Thank you, Jeff. You know, and that's something. Jeff that, is a great guy. That's something that, guys, I realize, and for all you listening out there, I'm not running because I think I have all the answers. I know I sure as hell don't, and I'm willing to be, I'm willing to humble myself and surround myself with a lot smarter people than, than me. That's the way I've become successful in business. You know, that, that was, that was how we, we all came home in the SEAL teams is just by humbling yourself, realizing you don't have all the answers, surrounding yourself with professionals, building a team and, and work, trying to work in the same direction. And I think that with the, the caliber of people that you have running toward the sound of political gunfire right now, if we're smart and if we get behind these folks, we can turn this thing around. So we're we're kind of running a little short on time. Let me ask a, a couple of important but questions I'd like to get kind of quick answers. You know something about war? This is day 19 of a pretty horrific war of aggression in Ukraine. If you were a member of the U.S. Congress, what would you tell your fellow members in the Republican caucus about what America's role should be? First, I would start by saying, fellas, uh, ladies and gentlemen, calm is contagious, Okay. It's really easy to start watching tel- the television shows, you know, showing videos of what's going on over there. Um, I'm sure there's levels of truth to some of it. I'm sure there's some propaganda that we're watching. The the, but it's easy. It's really easy to have your heartstrings pulled when you're watching cable news all day long. Um, I am an America First candidate, and I got I've got to look at our track record, look at what we've been doing for the last several decades in um you know um trying to change uh some of these countries um even you know change leaders that are more you know pro west pro pro democracy and i just want i just want us to take a pregnant pause be very very careful about what we do because if we do get into a kinetic fight and a kinetic war with the russians who have been running joint drills with the iranians and the Chinese, this could turn into World War Three, like that. I mean, it it would be it could it could so quickly turn into something that the world has never known. When you start looking at some of these other countries, their capabilities. I mean, it it will make the Iraqi Afghanistan conflicts look like right. a day at the beach. And so I know that a lot of Americans they're having their heartstrings pulled. They care about the Ukrainian people. They hate to see the aggression, um, but we have to be very, very careful, and we have to ask some hard questions like, what is the cost? What is the cost of this? And I think Eb and I, Eb being a veteran as well, um, but I think lots of Americans feel the way you feel on the border. Every Republican candidate for most any political office has had something to say about border security and, and, and American sovereignty for like 30-plus years. But here we are with the most porous border ever. If you represented Arizona's 2nd District in Congress right up against the border, what is your plan? What is your plan to secure the border from human and drug trafficking, enforcing the laws, and making our country safer? Well, from a policy standpoint, uh, sir, I think that we need to first return to Trump era policies on the border. I I think they did a pretty good job of securing that border for the time that they had in in that position, but obviously you brought up something very important in saying that every candidate has 
put out these same ideas and wanted to secure that border, but we haven't been able to get it done. And so when we talk about just getting it done, it's going to come down to whether or not we can build an alliance. Because in Congress, there's 435 people. In the Senate, there's another 100. And then you have to have the executive branch on board. And so you have to be realistic about, I can come in here and you know say the right things all day long, but if we're not able to build a coalition and a team, we're not going to get it done. And so it will, and I tell people all the time, sir, I'm, I'm not the answer. I'm not some type of savior. The, the answer is, in my opinion, the answer is sending a bunch of us that, to get it done and activism at the local level. I know you guys were talking about that when I came on. Mm. And I think as Republicans, we've done, a, and conservatives, we've done a really poor job over the last several decades, to be honest, of thinking we can just elect a couple people to go into public office, wash our hands of the situation, and then go sit back and watch our TV shows and be complacent. Yeah. So so this kind of draws back where we started. Uh, you served, you fought, yeah. uh, you honored our country by your service, um, you wanted to come home, but you saw the need to come back to service. Yeah. Lots of your fellow colleagues, your fellow warriors are also seeking to to be part of the the solution. Um, it's not so much about troops on the border, although it might be. It really is about the troops in Congress and in the other halls of power to to coalesce and to make a decision as to exactly how secure, how sovereign our country is to be in the future, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons. You And you pointed something out, sir. I got out of the military in 2014. So I've been living the American dream, in a sense, for the last six years. Yeah. And I never thought I would really be taking this step, but it's it's necessary. And the important thing is this country is still worth fighting for. They so, did a survey recently, and the Democrats overwhelmingly said that if the U.S. was invaded, they would leave and go somewhere else. <laughs> that's true. No, and, it, and I the saw Republicans that same overwhelmingly you're, said you're, you're they would kidding, stay. No, I'm that's, not kidding at all. That's a real thing? I'm not kidding at all. And here's my question, Democrats. Where are you going to go? Right. And, Eli, I'm going to tell you right now, we can secure the border. If that's what we choose to do, we can secure the border. Oh, absolutely. And just, it's not that hard. It's just letting the process work. Yeah. Well, just like people said, we couldn't defeat ISIS, right? And uh, or, we, or get break down the wall. No, absolutely, and it's. I think it it takes a it takes a lot of things, but it it takes men and women with common sense who have a have a history of doing the right thing when they felt like it might cost them, and that's the big thing for me. I look at the situation. I look at all these congressmen and senators and who went to all these fancy Ivy League schools and have these great resumes and pedigrees. I don't think the answer. I don't think the problem that we have is a lack of experience or intelligence. I think it's a lack of character and courage and being willing to do the right thing when you believe that it might cost you. Absolutely. All right. Before we go, our, our next guest is calling in from uh, from, from the swamp. Uh, tell us how people support you. Thank you guys again for the opportunity. Um, my website is Eli, Eli4Arizona.com. That's Eli4Arizona.com. And if you guys want to um, go on there, share our website with others, give a donation. We'd really, really appreciate it. And then my uh, social media is Eli Crane underscore CEO. Perfect. Hey, uh, 
waiting on the line, we hope, is repeat guest and author, opinion maker, Jeff Shesol, to talk about something perhaps many Americans have sort of been distracted about with the war in Ukraine, the nomination of Katanje Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court to replace Justice Stephen Breyer. So uh, before we take a break, Eli, thanks for dropping by. Don't be a stranger. Mr. Producer, let's take that bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Inside Track. We'll be right back after hearing from our great sponsors, including me. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is, A, we sell scrap to the mill. So... Uh, we have a relationship there, and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight, and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you think what's happening in Ukraine can't happen here, think again. Look who's occupying the White House. This is one of many things our forefathers predicted and ensured those rights in our Constitution. We manage money for gun owners. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We're pleased to welcome back Jeff Shessel. Did I say it right, Jeff? I've been you, you did, that. in fact, which means I did not. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't keep track anymore when you have a name like mine. <laughs> I, uh, Jeff was with us a while back talking uh, about something Eb and I, uh, and perhaps many of our listeners, have an interest in manned space exploration. Uh, today, we're going to talk with Jeff about another topic most of us have gr- a great interest in, and that is the third branch of our federal government the U.S. Supreme Court. A few years back, Jeff wrote a book titled Supreme Power about FDR and the Supreme Court. And just recently, Jeff wrote, an, I think, an excellent opinion piece on Justice Stephen Breyer, who recently announced his retirement. So uh, anyway, welcome back to the show, uh, Jeff. And uh, in that recent New York Times opinion piece titled The Willful Naivete of Stephen Breyer, you wrote, President Biden has an exceedingly narrow window in which a Supreme Court appointment is possible. Uh, The irony is that no one has been more insistent than Justice Breyer that politics do not shape the decisions of justices, that whoever put them on the court and how how justices are noncombatants in partisan wars. 
You say this is an idyllic notion, naive even, but there is reason to hope it outlasts Justice Breyer's tenure. So the president has nominated Katenji Brown-Jackson to replace uh, Justice Breyer. How does she match up uh, in judicial temperament and philosophy from Justice Breyer, do you think? I think she's very, very much in the, the mold of, of Justice Breyer. Um, maybe it's not fair to, to call it a mold. It's not uh, no. she hasn't shaped herself as, as any uh, responsible judge would. At the same time, um, they share an outlook um, in terms of, uh, you know, many facets of, of constitutional interpretation. Um, it is not a coincidence that uh, Judge Jackson had clerked uh, before she was a judge, it clerked for Justice Breyer. Mm-hmm. And they're both, uh, at least uh, before the, the Supreme Court became so polarized, they would have both been considered moderate um, in outlook, um, certainly uh, very calm and calming in temperament, um, and uh, incapable of uh, both standing on principle, as they define it, but also getting along effectively with the other side and and looking for opportunities to, to find common ground. Not always possible, obviously, um, when the issues are defined the way as sharply as they are. Uh, but she'll be looking for those opportunities if she's to be confirmed, uh, just as Justice Breyer has been. Yeah. So, Jeff, I want to be on the record um, for all of our listeners, and, and I've you and I have spoke about this before by saying whatever differences I may personally have with President Biden and his policies and decisions, he has an absolute right to nominate whomever he desires to fill vacancies on the Supreme Court. I hope Republican senators don't go after uh, this president's nominee the same way the Democrats did to President Trump's three appointees. Uh, or the way that Justice Thomas was treated by Senator Ted Kennedy and the current president when he served in the U.S. Senate. Um, I assume you would agree uh, with that. I mean, we're we must be in complete agreement on that, wouldn't you say? Well, we're in agreement with with part of that. Um, we're in agreement, certainly, that it is a presidential prerogative. I mean, it's laid out right there in the Constitution that it is the president's prerogative to appoint a justice to the Supreme Court. Obviously, the Senate has has a role in that. But traditionally, until the process began to break down in recent decades, traditionally, the Senate has has acknowledged if if the Senate is is led by uh, the party that is not controlling the White House, the Senate has essentially said, "Look, this person is qualified, uh, Mr. President. This this is your choice, and and you get to make it." I think where uh, the the process has broken down, there are probably a number of ways in, in which we could say that has happened uh, is when that prerogative has been denied to a president. I mean, when Mitch McConnell shut down the appointment process for virtually an entire year in order to hold that seat open, to deny President Obama the chance to appoint a justice as the Constitution said that he should, and to hold that open in the hope that a Republican would be elected in 2016, it was a gambit that that paid off, but it was a very destructive one. And it is one that is, I think, going to be bringing unfortunate returns as we go forward. It should not be the case. I mean, you quoted, you were kind to quote from my piece. It should not be the case that a president only has a tiny little window in which the politics line up just so that he might get a president, a, a Supreme Court appointee through. There are cases where uh, concerns, profound concerns, are raised by a nominee during the confirmation process that might suggest 
that maybe this isn't the right person for the court. Uh, the charges of sexual uh, harassment and abuse by now Justice Kavanaugh, the, the same for, for now Justice Thomas. Those, I think, are, are valid concerns to air um, and, and valid reasons to vote against a, a nominee. Um, I don't think that it is a, a matter of, sh- of sheer partisanship. But holding a seat open for almost an entire year, that to me is a raw partisan power play. And and so that's that's where we are, and that's likely where we're going to be uh, for for the foreseeable future. But this may be just that tiny little window yeah. in which a president nominates, the Senate approves, and and we move on. So, as you know, I really enjoyed your opinion piece about uh, Justice Breyer. You also wrote in that same uh, piece. In truth, the court's conservative majority is both a product and a sponsor of partisan conflict. The court has plunged, and you just talked about this, willfully into an era where uh, what law law professors Lee Epstein and Eric Posner, based upon a rigorous analysis of decisions, described extreme and alarming partisan division. And that was in 2018, before the appointment of Amy uh, Coney Barrett gave conservatives a 6-3 majority, and with it, an essentially free hand to steer the country to the right. Now, I I have a theory, and before we discuss uh, Judge Brown-Jackson, I'd like to try it out for size. Here it goes. Arguably, the 6-3, and this is in air quotes, conservative court, in theory and practice so far with a 6-3 conservative majority should be a very conservative court as a lot of people say uh, the court was liberal starting back in the 30s. But many have commented the court has not always been so conservative as expected. In fact, many conservatives, Jeff, have been extraordinarily disappointed with all three of the new quote-unquote conservative justice. Okay, so here's my theory. While the justices are conservative, uh, their positions are more based on their originalist leanings rather than a politically conservative bent. Republican rank and file, I guess, as well as GOP office holders who are conservatives, who say that they are originalists, but really are more politically and conservative than strictly originalist leaning. And, and so, Jeff, even if the reason these originalist justices have sided with the court, quote unquote, liberal justices, isn't it? It's not really that they're soft on conservative issues. They're doing what they promised to be. They're originalists. Their decisions uh, were not left of center, politically speaking. They were originalists in concept. And from time to time, uh, they're going to really piss off some GOP people uh, off and and probably the same way that that justices, you know, from the quote unquote left probably, uh, you know, piss uh, conservatives off. Am I am I wrong and crazy or is there some relevance to my theory? Well, I, I think there, there's there's a lot of relevance in, in what you say. And, and let me let me unpack it a little bit. Um, I would start with um, what I think is one of your first premises, which is that. These, these are, are, are six individuals who are not always going to be in lockstep on everything. That's, That's right. certainly true. We've already seen that. There are differences among them. Six people, pick any six people, even if they're, they're of the same background and the same ideology, they're going to disagree about certain things. And so you, you've seen some of that in certain decisions. Um, at the same time, I wouldn't want to overstate that. They are 
products of the the same conservative legal machinery, the same background, and in in many ways um, the, the 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 same set of ideas and the same agenda. I don't think there's going to be a significant deviation among them on affirmative action. I don't think there's going to be significant differences among them on abortion. This all remains to be seen. But these are the big tests. And while there have certainly been some examples of these conservatives disagreeing with one another for one reason or another, I I think that they're just getting started. This is really the beginning of a six-justice majority, and there is a lot on the judicial agenda that has been, I mean, let's just state it frankly, it's been on the conservative wish list, both legislatively and judicially, for for decades and decades, whether we're talking about abortion, whether we're talking about gun rights, whether we're talking about affirmative action. And so, you know, we will see um, uh, how much they disagree with one another over the coming years. But I think that most observers of the court, wherever they're coming from, uh, whether they, they cheer this or, or whether they, they fear this, um, recognize that affirmative action um, is is probably over, at least as it was understood, that abortion rights are going to be curtailed significantly or eliminated and so forth. So, you know, I, I again, I, I don't want to overstate exactly how much um, uh, of, a, of a, a range of difference that you're, you're likely to see among these justices. Um, the, the other thing that I would say, let's just talk briefly about originalism. I, I think that, you know, the problem with the re- there are a lot of problems, as I see it anyway, with with your originalist approach. And, and, and the first among them and maybe the most significant is that it, it lines up pretty neatly um, it, when you look at judicial decisions with the agenda of the Republican Party. And that's not to say I mean, I think, again, Bruce, there are some examples um, where that might not be the case. And certainly conservatives have been frustrated with say, Chief Justice Roberts from time to time over the years. Um, That being said, I think the idea that originalism automatically, first of all, even if you grant that it it is the valid and maybe even the only way to to rule on these these questions, the idea that it automatically uh, lines you up with the agenda of, of a Republican Party that has been moving rightward seems to me a little bit suspicious. And in fact, if you take a look at the dissenting opinion that, that Justice Stevens wrote in Heller in, in the individual gun rights decision, he wrote very deliberately an originalist argument against this expansion of gun rights. So I think that originalism in theory ought to point in a lot of different directions, but in practice it doesn't. And, be, and given that, I think we have to be very suspicious about justices who are claiming or essentially shrugging their shoulders and saying, I'm just doing what the founding fathers want me to do. So back to your our, back, back to your piece on, on Justice Breyer. Uh, he said uh, that he knows what it's like to write a dissent and he knows how it feels to lose what he has consistently said are the wrong reasons. Dogmatism, sophistry, outcome driven judicial uh, activism. And you go on later in the article to write, Justice Breyer, for his part, has met his own high standard. While standing firm for liberal principles, he has been a voice of restraint and moderation, trusted by both sides to mark out common ground temperamentally. And you say that he is suited to the task. So so talk about this. What, what has made Justice Breyer different from the other justices on the right and on the left, do you think, Jeff? 
Well, there are other justices, and there have been other justices that I would describe in, in similar terms. And, and I actually think that, as I mentioned in the piece, that Justice Kagan is very much cut from the same cloth. And I would imagine that that a Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, again, as we were discussing, would be cut from the same cloth. And and I think Chief Justice Roberts um, uh, is, is often of, of, of the same view, and that is that uh, we're going to, to, to try to mark out a decision um, that uh, that might get close anyway uh, to, to common ground, even if it doesn't land uh, squarely there. And on some issues, again, that's just simply not possible. The divergence of opinion is strong, and the opinions reflect that. And as you mentioned, just Justice Breyer has written some pretty strong dissents in his day. Um, but where possible, um, he's going to work to to find common ground. And I think that really the most interesting test case uh, of this was that year that we were talking about earlier when when Senator McConnell shut down the appointments process and the, the court was left with eight justices because it had followed the death of, of Justice Scalia. And so during that period, it was Justices Breyer and Kagan on the left and Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy on the right who worked together to try to allow the court to continue to function and not be deadlocked four to four for the remainder of the term. And they were surprisingly successful in that. And it takes a certain temperament to do that. That was not going to be a role that was going to be played, for example, by Justice Alito. He just was not interested um, in, in, um, in, in that approach. And so you had a critical mass of justices on the court who would do that. I'm just not so sure that's the case anymore. That is this is the last thing I'll say on the subject, but the, that is the enormous difference, the world of difference between 5-4 and 6-3. When it's 5-4, one vote, obviously, can tip a case in the other direction. When it's 6-3, that's just not going to happen. And so the need to compromise disappears. And that's, I think, the concern of a lot of us going forward, uh, not just because of uh, what the decisions themselves will say, but also just a, a complete unbridgeable divide on the court. Jeff Ebb here. Um, we've got three minutes left. Judge Brown Jackson has a great background. She was born in D.C., raised in Miami, Florida. She attended Harvard University for both college and law school, where she served as an editor of the Harvard Law Review. And she began her legal career with Three courtships, including one with Supreme Court Associate Justice Stephen Breyer. Prior to her elevation to an appellate court, she served as district judge for the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. She was also vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission from 2010 to 2014. And since 2016, she's been a member of the Harvard Board of Overseers. What do you know about the influence that Justice Breyer had on Judge Brown Jackson while she clerked for him? It's a great question, and I would imagine that, that Judge Jackson would say that it was a profound influence. In fact, she has suggested that that much. Um, it would be difficult for me to, to, um, uh, to, to know exactly how that has expressed itself, um, but I, I think a very thoughtful, deliberate, considered approach to the law uh, is, has been a feature of Justice Breyer's tenure, and it has certainly been a, a feature of, of Judge Jackson's tenure, both on the, the, the U.S. District Court for D.C., as you mentioned, as well as her, her relatively brief tenure so far on, on the D.C. Circuit. 
I, I think that's probably the, the, the most important influence. But also, again, coming back to what we were discussing at the beginning, it's a matter of temperament. I think that all of the biographical pieces that we've read so far about uh, Judge Jackson, Judge Jackson suggests that this is who she's always been. This is who she was as a high school debater. This is who she was uh, as an undergraduate and as a law student and so forth. Um, but she she found a, a you know a great match and a, and a great um, influence and mentor in, in Justice Breyer. Well, so based on this, isn't Justice Brown Jackson the ideal replacement for Justice Breyer? I would say so, absolutely. I, I think President Biden made an outstanding pick, uh, and I, I think she will uh, she will do honor to the court. I, I think that um, she's exactly the sort of person that you want to have on the court. It's very difficult for me to, to see what the argument against her could be. I, I think the attempts to paint her as, as some tool of the radical left or whatever the talking points say are just ludicrous. I don't think there's anything in her life experience uh, or her tenure, long tenure on, on these courts uh, that would suggest that. I think she's exactly who. Now, you, you know, and, uh, you might not agree with the, the decisions that that, that, she, that she hands down. You might not agree with her opinions, but she is very much of the, the temperament, I think, um, that we should all seek to, to have in a Supreme Court justice. Great. Hey, thanks for joining us, Jeff. The uh, U.S. Supreme Court is a very partisan topic for many. I hope we keep the discourse at a high level. That's all we have time for in today's show. So thanks for joining us. Uh, Bruce and I hope you enjoyed the show and our chats with Shelly Kais, Eli Crane, and Jeff Shessel. Until next week, this is Ev Wilkinson. And Bruce Ash. Wishing you a pleasant afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street, open Monday through Saturday. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you think what's happening in Ukraine can't happen here, think again. Look who's occupying the White House. This is one of many things our forefathers predicted and ensured those rights in our Constitution. We manage money for gun owners. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com.